Good morning. Good morning. Good to see you guys. Good to good to be together um, in the house of the Lord together to fellowship and good to worship with you online as well who um, have joined us there this morning. Uh, my name is Tri and I'm one of the pastors here at The Rock and um, we are continuing in our study here through 1 Peter. Um, we're just teaching straight through 1 Peter and we'll begin today in verse 13 of chapter 1. But before we do, we're... we're looking at this idea of being set apart, um, it, it's really the definition of holy. Uh, holy in the Bible means to be completely other than, to be set apart and different, to, to, to not be common or profane, but, but to be set apart, to be holy, to be righteous. Um, and, and the Bible says that, that this is the nature of of who God is, that, that probably one of the best things that we can look at and start to get a glimpse, just a small glimpse, it doesn't really, uh, really satisfy us or really uh, give us a, a complete definition, but if we looked into the creation, God, God's creation, the beauty of the world around us is, is God's initial revelation to humanity. In other words, when we look at the mountains and we look at the ocean or we look at the, the universe, we go, wow. And we are completely in awe. And, but really what that should do to us is it should have a reckoning within our minds and within our hearts and within our soul that, that reminds us and tells us that there's a God who's bigger than that. There's a God who, who created that, a God who isn't subject to that because he's the author of all of it. We're talking about a God who is outside of time and space, a, a God who isn't subject to history, a God who isn't limited by any, uh, any finite thing that would limit us. His, his power is infinite. His abilities are, are without bounds. And this is the God that we are talking about here as we kind of come into this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, which says this. It goes on, and it reminds us. It says, therefore, and remember, when the Bible says therefore, there's a reason that it's therefore. And, and it's this idea that, that as we looked up into the, the verses before, we, we, we realized that, that God is doing a work in us, that even though we're living in difficult times, even though there are trials in our lives, that we can trust and believe and know that there is a God who is forging character in our lives, who's changing us through the hard times that we live in, that he's not wasting our difficulties, but that he is at work in the midst of those, and that ultimately what God is promising to us, his greatest promises to us are salvation, the idea that he is going to carry us out of this plane of existence and into the next, and because of that, we should live with great joy, great anticipation of, of what, uh, what our future holds, knowing that we aren't subject to the temporal realities of this world, but to an eternal reality that will never change, that will never fade, that will never go away. And so therefore, it begins in verse 13, it says, preparing your minds for action. Being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let's remember that the Bible calls us to understand and remember that we are in a battle, that, that there, is a, there is a war that in the supernatural realm, that there is a war that is raging around us, that, that there is a war of, of good and evil. There are both benevolent and malevolent spirits around us, and that God is in the middle of that 
that, but make no bones about it. The demonic realm is a real realm. The, the, the evil in the world is really evil. And, and, and we are um, in, in the presence of this. And so there's a real call that says to prepare our minds for action. It, it, in the Greek, it literally means gird up your, your, your mind or, or begin to put on that armor. Ephesians chapter 6 talks about the armor of God and the reality of this battle that we're in and that each and every day that we are, we really need to get up and we need to put on the full armor of God, recognizing and knowing that it's him who, who, who is able to deliver us, him who's able to save us. It's him who takes ground on our behalf. But in Ephesians 6, it reminds us to continually to stand on this ground, to stand firm, therefore, uh, for this, these things that have been done for us. It means sober-minded. It means to have our minds clear, clear of the things of this world, being careful and guarded as to actually what we're allowing into our minds. Bible tells us to, to think on such things that are good, things that are, things that are beautiful, things that, that God has made, and, and even the positive aspects of things, not the distorted things of this world. But you see, we're kind of, we're kind of a garbage in, garbage out kind of creatures, right? And what we fill our minds sets our feet on a path. And, and so we have decisions to make each and every day, and those decisions look like serving our flesh or serving the Spirit, living and walking in the Spirit or living and walking in our own abilities, our own self, our own self-will, which is always limited in its ability to change us or move us in any kind of a good direction. So the idea is to be sober-minded, not to be kind of overcome. The opposite of being sober-minded would be to be drunk-minded, right? To, to be distorted in our thinking, to have a distorted view of reality. So how do we have a, a right view of reality? Well, we've got to go to God for that. We've got to go to the ultimate source of reality, the one who created everything, the one who's greater than everything, the one who is set apart from, who's holy, who's righteous, and who is perfect. So 1 Peter 1.14 says, oh, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So it's this idea again, like last time through when we did Christ and culture, our, 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 our theme was, you know, be no longer conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, right? And ultimately it goes on, that verse goes on to tell us that if we want to understand and know what God's will for us is, it's this picture that we have to get our minds in tune with where God is at and what God is doing, that we've got to kind of turn the radio dial into the same place that he is, is, is speaking, and that is never to the flesh. See, if we're, if we're walking in the flesh, if we're walking in our own righteousness, if we're walking in our own abilities, God is not going to speak to you or me there. Why? Because he said that the flesh must die. And he is not going to speak into what he has said must die. His, speak and his, his, his speech and his frequency is tuned into the Spirit. So we have to become a people who are tuned in, who are walking in the Spirit. And now verse 15 really calls us out of the world and into something different, into something that uh, God has for us. It says, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So here's this picture of God's holiness, of his perfection. 
Holiness is an interesting concept. If we looked at the Old Testament and we looked at the concept or the idea of God's holiness, what we would see is, is, that, is that no one was allowed into the presence of his holiness. No one could come too close to him because even though he's good, his holiness isn't necessarily something that's safe for us as we are not holy, as we are unrighteous, as we're impure. And so in the Old Testament, what we see is this idea of trying to approach God in our impurity actually destroyed us. It actually destroyed people. The, the, the priest could only enter the temple, the Holy of Holies in the temple, one time per year, and only then after having made atonement for their own sins, right? Because the reason was, was because their sin would leave them just exposed and destroyed by the holiness of God. It, it, it's this difficult thing to kind of get a hold of, but what we see is that, you know, like, like Moses and, and even um, uh, Moses is, and Joshua, they're, they're told, hey, look, man, take your shoes off because where you're at is a holy ground, right? And, and, and the presence of God is just so powerful and so intense on them that they recognize that, that this purity of God will destroy us if we aren't somehow pure. And then we enter into the New Testament picture with Jesus coming, and now all of a sudden he comes in perfect purity and holiness and is a demonstration of God's purity. Only when he touches, he transmits his purity into others. So he touches what's impure like a leper and brings purity to them. And so this is, this is this picture that we must be touched by the holiness of God. Otherwise, the reality of his holiness will be destruction for us one day. You see, there's, there's, this, there's this thing that says that God is so other than, that he's so pure, he's so perfect, he's so righteous, that anything that is even imperfect in any way can't be in his presence. And we were like, well, why? What, what, what is the deal with that? And the reason is it's all about God. It's about his character. It's about his nature, not ours. And you see, if he agrees with any source or any place of what's wrong or what's evil or what's not right or what he hasn't agreed with, then the problem is, is that if he agrees with it, if he sweeps it under the, under the rug some way, it would then begin to uh, detract from his character. As a matter of fact, we would, we would begin to see him different. As a matter of fact, you see, it's not about what you do. Many times it's about what we don't do. You see, if you knew that I was living next door to a house in which awful things were happening in that house on all kinds of levels, and I knew about it, and, and um, gosh, I didn't think it was okay, I thought it was really wrong, and I really hated what was going on over there. You see, if I allowed it to go on, if I didn't judge it, if I didn't uh, pursue righteousness and do the right thing and at least report what was going on in that house, then it would begin to change how you saw me because you would say you knew about that the whole time. And so we have this, this dilemma and this tension in our relationship with God that we live in the kind of the not yet, that God is right now is being, um, he, he's being long-suffering, he's being patient, he's being kind, but one day there's this reality that his holiness will demand judgment and it will demand it in full. And that's going to be a very um, scary day for those who are outside of Christ. 
Verse 16 says, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. You see, we are living here in this place now of exile. This is not our home. If you're in Christ, this isn't your final destination. This isn't your last hope. And we need to be a people who quit living with the idea or the thought or the actions of that we believe that there is permanence here. We know that there's not permanence here. And, and, and this idea of being set apart as God's people or consecrated for him is this idea that we need to be a people that contrasts the realm of the sacred and the realm of the common and the profane, that we need to become a people who begin to pursue that which God has called to be right and holy and good. It, it, it's this picture that, that, that we begin to love, that we begin to understand the, the holiness of God, and that we continue to set the bar here, and we continue to encourage each other to jump over it. We don't become a people who are lowering this bar. See, uh, whatever is unloving of God, others, self, and all of God's creation is that which is unholy. There's a proclamation throughout Scripture, and when it says that God is holy, it does it in the superlative form. It says not just that he is holy, holy. Jesus, when he spoke, he spoke in, the, in, in this way of saying truly, truly, right, and, and, and put emphasis on this idea. But when God, is, his holiness is, is professed in the Bible, it isn't just holy, holy. It's holy, holy, holy. It is in the superlative, it's in the perfect form, and it's three times because God himself is three, and he is holy, holy, holy. It doesn't say he is love, love, love. It doesn't say that he is justice, justice, justice. It says that he is holy, 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 and out of that holiness, all love and all justice flow. So let's look at this. Now, this is a scary thing. It's a scary thing for me because we're like, whoa, what do we do? How do we do this? Now, this is the place where Christ has interceded into this problem, this dilemma that we have between God's holiness and his perfection and our sinful nature. And on the cross, Jesus pays the penalty for that by stepping in between us and the justice that is due to us, and he takes it upon himself. He takes it on himself, and then what he does is because he's paid the penalty, if you're in Christ, he's bought you, he's purchased you, and now he's said, I own this, this one is mine, and he has imputed or given righteousness into your account. So now, if you are in Christ, you are positionally perfect before God. You don't have to please God. He's pleased. You're not working to be a good person. We're not buying uh, a bunch of Operation Christmas Child boxes to, to be better. We're not working. We're not going out there and, and helping old ladies and, and uh, across the street and, and doing all kinds of things for widows and orphans because we're trying to uh, be good before God or because we're trying to live a holy life. God is not calling you to go out and live this life of holiness on your own, by your own merit. That's called self-righteousness. What God is calling you 
to do is to have a relationship with him that is so deep, so spirit-fed, so following that out of your life there is an outflow of holiness, that our minds and our desires begin to line up with his, that the very things that we want to do in our lives are the very things that he has called holy and acceptable. And we do that not by, not by becoming holy, not by really being perfect. You see, we are positionally perfect. Ephesians 1, 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. How are we? We're holy and blameless. Colossians 1.22, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So it's this picture that, that it's, it's, God's, it's God's holiness, it's his holiness placed into our account. And then it's our desire and our, our, um, our efforts to walk in this, okay? So it says, if you call him father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear through the time of your exile. You say, well, wait a minute, Try. I thought you just said you didn't do it by a bunch of deeds. You don't do it by a bunch of deeds. You don't go out there by your own self-will and just try to be good. But I want to tell you the reality of our deeds is that, um, is that there's nothing that's more revealing of the reality of our heart and our mind but the things that we do. That whether we follow his righteousness, whether we follow the things that he's done. Remember, Jesus says, if you love me, you follow my commands. It's a demonstration of the reality of our relationship with him. It's a reality of the place and the position of our own hearts by what we're doing and how we're living. You see, he is calling you to a relationship which is filling us so deeply that he overflows out of us and into the world around us, and he begins to affect change in the world. You see, our works don't demonstrate the reality of our... They, they, our works demonstrate the reality of our allegiance. They do not save us, but they are fruit that demonstrates that we have had an encounter with this holy creator of the universe. See, if you've had an encounter with the creator of the universe, we'd have to all agree that that should leave us changed. That should leave us different. And it's not about church. It's not about coming to church. It's not about hearing a sermon. See, we have to, we have to get away from that idea. I'm going to keep pushing us away from this idea that you came to church. You didn't. You brought church with you. And you came to the building which the church gathers to encourage one another, to hear a message so that the church can go out the doors and demonstrate the holiness and the righteousness and the goodness of God. The problem with the church and all of us is that too much of the world has, we've allowed it to overflow onto us. We've begun to believe and adapt the ideas of the culture around us. We've, we've, we have a, a misunderstanding of our identity about who we are and, and where we're at. You see, there's a fear of the Lord that this talks about, a reverence, an understanding that he is so awesome, that he is so powerful, that I can't just flippantly walk through life doing what I want to do and think that there will be no consequence. Think, think that I can just do it however I want. You see, the reality of my heart and the reality of my actions demonstrates the reality of the allegiance where my heart is really at. 
And, and, and so again, we're not working to prove ourselves to God. We're not working to, uh, to earn God's favor or his credit. But the reality of our works and the reality of where my mind is at and your mind is at in our hearts is that we need to be a people who are taking account and saying, what is the most important thing to me? Where's my treasure? Where have I laid up my treasure? Because where my treasure is, my heart is there also, Jesus says. And, and so, so this I, I, idea that, uh, that we can do it on our own is just crazy. God is not calling you to go out there and do a bunch of good stuff. He's calling you to go out there and surrender harder for him. Surrender to him and his lordship in your life harder. And then guess what? He's going to work the works out. He's going to do that. It's going to be an outflow out of your life. It's not going to be an outflow out of our own self-righteousness. See, if we just go out to help a bunch of people, then there's a reality of my motives. My motives are twisted. My motives aren't pure. My motives aren't right. My motives have a, have a tinge of, of uh, not just a tinge, but, but a whole lot of selfishness to them. They're, they're twisted by my own sinful nature and by my own selfishness. And if I go out there and I just try to do a bunch of good things, I'm going to do it. I'm going to make sure that some people are watching generally. I'm going to go out there. I'm going to do these things because they're an extension then of my own sinfulness. They're really an extension of my self-righteousness. And you see, self-righteousness is the big problem that we have. It's the big problem that Jesus had with the Pharisees. It wasn't that their religion was bad. It was that they began to believe that their ability to do their religion so well made them righteous. And they forgot that they had a need of a relationship with God. You see, loving one another can only proceed out of our love for God. We demonstrate to the world the reality of the gospel by how well we do at this. So, so it's this idea, it's this fear of God, and you're like, man, I thought God said fear not, and we're not supposed to be afraid. There's one fear that pushes every unfounded fear out of our lives, and that's the fear that we should have, the fear of God, the right reverence of God, not, not minimizing God or thinking that like if Jesus shows up today, we're all going to run outside and high-five him. You're not. You're going to be on your face until he tells you to get up. This is the holiness of God. And anybody who ever had an experience with God had the same reaction when they were in his presence. Isaiah chapter 6, he said, Woe is me, for I am undone. I'm exposed for who I really am. And I'm looked at against the holiness of who God is, and it has left me ruined. But what happened? What happened? There was a coal that came. And when that coal touched Isaiah, it didn't itself become impure. It purified him. This coal is a picture of what Jesus did. As we touch Jesus, we don't make him impure. His purity overflows into our lives. And that's the saving grace that, that we have. So it goes on to say this, conduct yourselves with fear. And again, one more time, I'm going to tell you just my little example. When my boys were little, we have a wood stove. And when we lit the wood stove, we said, don't touch the wood stove. It's a big deal. Don't touch it. Hot. And they were all like, ooh, all right? I think he actually attracted them to it like a moth to a flame. But anyway, probably shouldn't do that. Anyway, he's like, hot. Well, and you're like, don't touch it. Well, what did we all do? We touched it. And when we touched the, the stove, we, we understood in a deeper way the reality of what the stove really is. We understood that the stove is good, but it's hot. 
And the closer you get to the stove, the more intense that is, but it's still good. And, and so this fear that we're supposed to have, my, my boys developed a fear of the wood stove, but it was a healthy fear. It was a right fear. What it did was it changed their behavior so that they didn't hurt themselves around the stove. And so even they didn't come out of the bedroom and see the stove and go, ah, and curl up in the fetal position in the morning. They run to the stove. It's their favorite place to go and enjoy the warmth of the stove. But guess what? They never have wrestling matches that break out right next to the stove. Why? Because they understand the reality of the stove and they've modified their behavior so that they don't hurt themselves. This is the right reverence that we're to have for God. And that, that falls short, but, but it's this idea. It's like the sun. It's like the sun is good and it brings all life. But the closer you get to the sun, the more intense that gets. And you can't get too close to the sun or it'll kind of burn you up kind of a thing. It's this picture that if we haven't been touched by Christ, that God is very dangerous. His holiness is dangerous to us. It's, it's this picture that we can't uh, get too close to it. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways, inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. See, it's this, what, what, a, what a great picture that says, guess what? You weren't bought and purchased by cheap stuff like silver and gold. You were, you were bought by something that was precious, something that was so valuable that you can't even put a price tag on it. It's not temporal like these things that are going to go away like silver and gold. This is the precious blood of Christ that was shed for you on your behalf so that you might be holy, so that you might have the righteousness of Christ. And it's all about him. It's not about how good you were. It wasn't because you or I deserved it, quite the opposite. It was all about how good and loving this God was that he would reach down and would touch us. Not because we were lovely, but to make us lovely, right? And then he, he presents himself, presents his church as this bride that he's making beautiful. It goes on to say, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and the abiding word of God. This is the thing. It's this idea that you have been born again. You have been bought. You have been purchased. The holy God, the creator of all things, entered into time, space, and history, interceded on your behalf, paid the penalty for your sin so that he might then give you and I his righteousness. What a picture. What an amazing thing. And it's not an imperishable. It's not a perishable seed. It's imperishable. It's going to last forever. And because of that, if we believe that, that should change how we live our lives. It should change the, the trajectory of our lives. We shouldn't just be a people who are living by what we feel, but by the very word of, of God that says that all flesh is like grass and all the glory like the flowers of the grass. The grass withers and the fall, flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. 
And so there's this question and this challenge that I have for us, and that is, are you in God's word? Are you actively in God's word, pursuing relationship with him? Because the reality of it is, is, is that if we, um, if we aren't actively in God's word, then your walk is stagnant at best. It cannot be vibrant unless there's an engage, and God engages us through his word. John 17, 17 says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent, uh, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask of these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, right? So, so we, we are these ambassadors who, who, who get to proclaim and live out and enjoy the freedom of God's holiness and live holy lives ourselves. Psalm 1, 2 is a contrast. Psalm 1 is a contrast between two different styles of living. And it says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He delights in this. Why does he not do the first part? It's not because of his own self-effort and his own self-will. It's because he does the second part. He delights in God's word and in God's law. He recognizes and sees it as his freedom. He sees it as, as, as the way that his life is changed and, ex, and expanded. And not only that, but he also sees it as the way in which God wants to work in the world through us and affect change in the world around us. We have this amazing opportunity to speak truth and life and love to the world around us. But you know what? They gotta see it in your life first. They gotta recognize that you're living differently, that you're living set apart, that we don't value the same things, that there are some things that we value so highly that we're very protective of them because we recognize that they're sacred, that there are sacred things that are out there, and, and that we've been called to uphold those things. So as we close here, I, I really want to give us about seven ways just to kind of um, think through this. Seven ways to, to kind of um, to, uh, to, to change. Seven practices, seven disciplines that we might have that would help us. And the first one is to get into God's word, to, to, to live out of God's word, to recognize that, um, that it's God's word that is going to change us. To make a daily practice, I challenge you to start with 10 minutes. Start with 10 minutes in the morning, God's word. Just get started. Get started. Start living in that. Start setting your day and the trajectory of your day off of what God has said to you in the morning. And then let that time grow and grow. The next thing is this. Um, it, it, it's this idea of live out of what your true identity is. I can't tell you how important it is to live out of your real identity. We have a false identity. We have a skewed identity of ourselves. We believe ourselves 
to be marred, to be ugly, to be less than, to, to have fallen short in this place or this area, or see these people are so much better than us. But you see, that's not the reality of what God says. If he says you're wholly blameless and beyond reproach, if you're positionally perfect before him, it's important that you live out of that place. And the reason it's important to live out of that place is because you'll treat yourself the way you see yourself. And you need to see yourself how God sees yourself. Because we don't want to allow ourselves or allow things into our lives because we think that that's all that we're worthy of. When in reality, God has said, you're a son or you're a daughter, and you're worthy of, of, of everything. Ephesians 5, 25 through 27, it, it reminds us to, for husbands to love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, so that she might be holy and without, blame, without blemish. I'm challenged to live out of your real identity. to understand that, that you're the bride of Christ, that one day we'll be joined with him and that we'll live with him forever and that he's purchased us and that he is at work sanctifying us or making us more holy. And you know what? Um, you know, just recognize that this is a process. This isn't a destination. It's, it's not someplace we just arrive at. It's a work that God is doing in our lives and our job is just to allow him to do what he wants to do in our lives. The next thing is, is this, it's to, it's to examine ourselves daily and repent on a daily basis, to recognize the reality of, of what I'm living for, the reality of where my mind and my heart are at, the things that I'm doing, right? John, 1 John 2, 1, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. You see, I'm just recognizing the reality that I, I just need to do this. I, I need to make a daily practice of, of examination and repentance, more so than what I do. I, I need to keep my heart right before the Lord. And this is how we do this. We just get real. Because when we enter into a place of reality, we enter into a channel of healing. We enter into a channel of hope, a place where God is at work and wants to change our lives. But if we won't do that... If we're angry or if we're resentful or whatever we've got going, and I've had my own stuff, but we live in a place, denial, and there's no hope there. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He says he's ready to do it. The question is, are we ready to enter into that kind of a process? Are we really ready to examine ourselves daily and really repent? The next thing is to start to do the work. Train. The Bible talks about this. It equates this to a race. And races aren't necessarily enjoyable. Like I said, doesn't look to me like anybody running is having fun. But that aside, the, the idea of the race is, is finishing the race. It's, it's the completion of the race, right? If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of, of the faith and the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness, for the bodily training is of some value. Godliness is of value in every way, as it holds the promise for the present life and also for the life to come. 
that we're supposed to be a people who are truly in training. How do we do that? We do that by prayer. We do that by meeting with God. We do that by fellowship here, by coming together, um, by encouraging one, one another. We do it also, too, by this. Um, give yourself a break. Proverbs 24, 16 says, for though a righteous man falls seven times, he rises again, right? When, when, when you fail, don't let despair take over. When you fall short, don't allow, the, 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 don't allow yourself to live in the despair and the failure of that. Recognize who we serve, who our true identity is in. Get back up and get back to work. When you fall or you fail, don't let that control you. Don't let that despair you. The other thing is this, is, is, is to cast off the things of the world, to begin to live differently than the way that this culture and this world is calling us to live. Romans 12, 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may, de you may discern what the will of God what is good and acceptable and perfect. We always wanna know what's God's will, what's God's will, what's God's will. Right there, it says, uh, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Allow God's word to wash over us and change us. Flee from the world. What are you allowing in your head? What are you allowing to rent space in your head? What movies, what music, what kinds of things? Don't think that we're unaffected by those kinds of things that we allow in. Jesus said that the eye is the lamp of the body. And then finally, make sure that, that just whatever we're at, that whatever we're doing, that we commit ourselves totally to the Lord. Psalm 37.5, commit your ways to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. Put the ring on, do it. Maybe you've never done that. Maybe you've never really said yes to Jesus. You know, one thing that worries me as a pastor is that I, 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 I fear that I, I sit in the presence week by week by week by week of people who don't know Jesus, who think they know Jesus because they come to church. But I'm going to tell you that church doesn't save. Jesus saves. I hope this is a place where you can come into relationship with Jesus, where you get a right understanding of who he is and what he's come for and what he's done. But coming to church is not what saves us. A relationship with Jesus. We put the ring on. We say yes. We say we make him Lord of our lives. We just agree with him that we have been sinful and rebellious in our lives, and, 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 and we admit that. And we, we, we just ask him to come in. And it's not so much about words. It's about a heart that says, I, I want to pursue what you're about. I want to I know your holiness. I want you to have control of every aspect of my life. And when we do that, then he comes in. He begins to change. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit comes in and begins to take up residence, not in, not in external temples, but inside of believers who are walking around, who are active in this world around us, sharing the hope that we have. See, this is the importance of holiness is because we're supposed to be the dwelling place of God. And so his temple can't be profaned and then him called holy, righteous, and good. 
Holiness matters, Philippians 2.15, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. We're supposed to stand out. We're supposed to be a lamp that's lit, a city that sits on a hill. Holiness matters in our lives because we want to experience and live in the blessing and the freedom of that holiness. But it also matters to the world around us because if they can't see it working for us, they'll never believe that it could work for them either. Luke 16, 13, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Certainly, Jesus' example there is about money, but money is one of those things that particularly pulls at us and, and gets us off track and caught up into this world. But you could replace it with a number of things, and the idea is about lordship. And Jesus is simply saying, you can't be in two places at one time. You can't call me Lord while you serve something else. Your actions aren't matching up, and actions are always going to speak louder and the words that come out of our mouths, our actions really point to the reality of the allegiance of our heart. So Lord, we just thank you. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you that you are holy, that you are awesome, that you are beyond reproach, that you are perfect, that, that in you there is no limitations, that you are boundless, that your love for us is uncontested, that, that God, you have a plan and a purpose for each one of us here, that God, that you've come down, that you've reached into this place and this space and you have given us your grace, that you've imputed righteousness and holiness into our account. Even though we weren't worthy, you're so good that you did that for us because of your love and your pursuit of a relationship with us. And so, Lord, we just want to give everything back to you. Help us, Lord, to be individuals and to be a church that truly pursue your holiness, that we pursue your plans and your purposes, that we demonstrate and that we show a light into the world around us of what living for you really looks like. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.